0: While the worship team is making their way down, how about if you take a Bible out and uh, if you have one with you, turn it to Acts chapter 10. If you don't have one with you, you're going to find them in the rack there in front of you and if you don't own a Bible, there's some free ones in the back. I'd love for you to pick one up when you leave today so you have a copy of God's Word. Um, before I scare you away by telling you that we're going to do all of Acts chapter 10 this morning, um, just let me... Uh, assure you, it moves very, very quickly. It's 48 verses. Maybe you already looked at your study guide this morning and you thought, what? Is he crazy? Well, I've not done 48 verses before, but I I want you to know it's a a story that just cannot be interrupted. I used to interrupt stories for my kids when I was putting them to bed, and they'd always get so mad at me that I didn't finish the story. So we're going to finish this story, but it'll move really quickly. Before we jump into it, let me pray for us. Father, we come before you in just recognizing that your Holy Spirit is our teacher, so we invite you to teach us right now to come around us and uh, push on areas in our life where we need you to push. Show us a, a new reality of who you are. Help us to understand you more deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were going to make a uh, top ten list in your life of individuals that you could look back on over history that you would say those guys are the most evil to have ever lived on planet Earth. I bet some immediate names pop in your mind. So I'm gonna ask you to participate with me in this, all right? So let's come up with a top 10 list. When you think of the most evil individuals that you think of egregious acts in in the world, world history, who pops in your head? Hitler always makes the top, all right? Who else? Osama Bin Laden. Okay, I'm hearing lots of them. Just shout them out really loud. Mao. Mao yeah. No. Pol, Pot. Pol Pot. Yeah, of uh, Khmer Rouge and the execution. Say that again back there. Uh, Gufang. Sorry. Oh, okay. We'll 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 come back to that one later. Um, what about this one? Good point. What about this one, um, Vlad the Impaler? There's a nickname that he really liked. He was known, in matter of fact, the story of Dracula is based on Vlad, Vlad the Impaler. It, it comes back to this period of time when he executed so many of his own people that he just became known as this bloodthirsty guy. Ivan the Horrible, Russia. Here's a name that I didn't hear. Maybe somebody shouted it out. Stalin. 20 million people. 20 million. That's best historians can calculate from the area around World War II. Russia, if you're not familiar with it. So we've got this list that pops in our mind of individuals whom we think did horrible things. And we'd have to agree. If, if we came up with that list and they've got this itinerary of things that they did in the way of executing people, it seems like unsurpassable evil. Yet you come to the New Testament, and Paul is living, first century. He comes to this period of time where he recognizes who Jesus is. And mind you, prior to Paul, has been Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus the Great, Darius, and Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the most evil. How can Paul say that? He knows who's lived before him, but he puts himself on the list of the top ten saying no one has surpassed me, I lead the pack. What about you and I? Whether or not you believe that individuals that we've just named belong on a list, let's evaluate ourselves. What if we were to come up with the top ten worst things we've personally ever done? What would be on that list? Don't say it out loud. Not that you would anyways what would that list look like? See, here's where I'm going with this. Every single person who ever has lived on planet Earth is guilty of sin before God except for one person, Jesus. So let's let's lean into Romans 3.23. Regardless of who you think belongs on the list, God's Word says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can't get there on our own according to God's word. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, right? So the truth is we don't even need to read that. Even though God included it in his word to put an exclamation point on it, we don't need to read it because every single one of us have sin in our life regardless if you think you belong on the list or not. So it's much easier for a child to think of things they've done wrong because they come up with really innocent lists, right? And then when we transfer over into adulthood, we want to tend to forget those things. We push them down, but they're still there nonetheless. So for a child, it might be very innocent. You move into adulthood, it's much more egregious. It can be something as simple as stealing a handicapped parking spot All the way to blank. You fill in the blank. Let's carry this thought that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God into Acts chapter 10 this morning because it really frames what Acts chapter 10 is all about. Here's where we left off. Peter is in Joppa. We saw last week that he's in this coastal city, sits on the side of the Mediterranean, and he's moved into the house of Simon the Tanner. And Simon the Tanner's carrying out some activities that are really offensive to a Jewish person. Those are things that he doesn't want to be associated with in his Jewish upbringing, but he's moved in there because God's moved him to. So these are challenging days for Peter because we found these walls of his lifelong prejudices are tumbling down. Here's some of the things we've learned in the book of Acts. Jews have an absolute disgust for the Samaritan people in the first century, yet God moved the Christian Jews to go up into Samaria to reach the Samaritan Christians. Their disgust for the Samaritan people pales in comparison to their hatred of the Gentiles. What we're about to see is this monumental chapter unfold in front of us where God reaches into the world of the Gentiles. And you're wondering if you're a Gentile this morning. If you weren't born a Jew, you're a Gentile, right? Okay, it's not a derogatory term in the Bible. If you're born Dutch, you're Gentile, right? I'm I'm Dutch, all right? So if you're Swedish, you're Gentile. If you're Chinese, you're Gentile. If you're Indian, you're Gentile. Anybody who's not born of the Jewish bloodline is Gentile, not derogatory. It's just an identification. It's, It's a silo that people fit into. So chapter 10 opens up with Peter staying with Simon the Tanner, a trade despised by Jews. Jews had certain things they would not associate with, and Simon was one of those, but yet we find him moved in with him. Before the gospel can go to all the nations, Jesus said it's going to go to all the nations, Gentiles, There's some walls that have to come down. So there's a final barricade that God has to remove. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 starts this way. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him Cornelius and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed he said what is it lord and he said to him your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before god now dispatch some men to joppa and send a man for a man named simon who is also called peter he is staying with with a tanner named simon whose house is by the sea when the angel who was speaking to him had left he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in his personal attendance. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now Caesarea 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's 30 miles north of Joppa. Here's why it's remarkable, and there's a large garrison there. The Romans, Caesar himself, had spent a lot of money building a deep sea port so that trade ships could come in and out easily to bring supply goods into the Middle East. He had built an aqueduct system to allow fresh water to come into this very large city. So, as a result of that, he, just, he stationed a battalion of soldiers, a legion, actually. 6,000 Roman soldiers occupy that city. The, the legion was made up of cohorts 10 cohorts. One of them is an Italian cohort over which Cornelius rules. And he serves as a leader over this group of Italian archers who are precision warriors. So we have here a man who is a noble Roman officer, but he's much more than that. He's a man who's seeking after God. He's doing what all of us do when we come in here. He's he's an individual who fears God and who is devout and wants a relationship with God. He wants to understand him better. So, Cornelius is a guy who's abandoned the pagan Roman way of life and he's chasing after the one true God, the God Jehovah. We're told in verse 3 it's the ninth hour, meaning it's 3 in the afternoon. That's the time of prayer. And God responds to his prayer request by sending this angel. Verse 4, and it says he fixed his gaze on him. Now, you've got a soldier here who you see is in terror. And he's shocked by what he's seeing. Matter of fact, the the word that's being used here is emphobos, meaning he's in absolute awe over what he's mesmerized by, this gleaming individual in front of him. And notice, big picture, God's the one reaching out, right? God's reaching out to Cornelius, not the other way around necessarily. God's doing this at his direction, sending this messenger. Another thing you should notice by verse 4 is that God is totally aware of what's going on in Cornelius' life. Just like he's aware of what's going on in your life. The angel actually says to him, there's this memorial going up before God of the things that you have done, the things that God has noticed that are going on in your life. This is so great, church. When you think of the things that you have done this last week, the things that you have done over the course of your life that are God-oriented the things that you will do in the future that are God-oriented. God's telling us right there that he knows these things. Nothing escapes his attention. Matter of fact, the angel uses Old Testament language. He, he reaches back into a familiar language when he says, this has come up before God as a memorial. That's Old Testament language saying, this is like a fragrant aroma before God. I don't know if you guys do any grilling in your backyard, but occasionally I, I've destroyed a few chickens in my backyard. And not intentionally, but, you know, when you put meat on the grill, it smells so good. But sometimes when you lift the lid of the grill, you've totally destroyed the meat inside, right? But, but from a distance, when the smoke's going up, the aroma is oh, so pleasing until you get there and see that you totally destroyed the chicken. But before that, it's the aroma God says in this Old Testament language, what you've done, Cornelius, these things, this attention towards me is this fragrant aroma. I have turned my attention towards you. Would you not love to know the content of this guy's prayer? Because he's gained the attention of God, he must be a really intent individual. Let me speculate. It's very likely that he has asked God for the very thing that you have asked God for. It's very likely that he's asked God if he could know God better, that he could encounter him in some way. You and I know this morning there's only one way to know God. There's only one way to have relationship with him. According to his word, that way is through Jesus Christ. That's how you have relationship with God. Now, at this point, the angel has revealed nothing about God's bigger purposes, All he knows, all Cornelius knows is he's supposed to send some soldiers to Joppa to find a man named Peter. Now, why the delay? It's two days from Caesarea down to Joppa and then two days back again. That's a four-day journey. Could not the angel just tell Cornelius, hey, here's who Jesus is. This is the explanation for him. Why the delay? Well, because God works through men. God works through mankind to talk to mankind about who he is. And regardless of the fact that he also needs Peter there, because Peter's got to see what's developing. He's got to see it firsthand. Let's move forward into verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Let me help you with this word, trance. It's the word ecstasis in the Greek language. We use it in the English language, ecstasy. It doesn't mean Peter's gone into this drug-like coma state, okay? He's not been smoking the wrong thing or drinking too much. That, that's not what's going on. He's totally conscious. He's physically present. But he's absolutely bewildered by this thing that he sees in front of him. It's astonishing because physically he's seeing something that isn't actually present. It's like an image. Verse 13, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholier and, and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. So it's the sixth hour, meaning it's noon of the next day, the day after Cornelius had the vision. Peter's hungry. I've noticed Peter's hungry a lot in the Bible, by the way. Many times I look at him, he seems to be hungry. So it's noon, it's mealtime, he's hungry, and he's waiting for lunch to be made, so he's gone up on the rooftop, which is flat in the Middle East, and in the Middle East, many of the homes had awnings on the top floor because they could catch the cool breeze coming off the Mediterranean, yet they catch the shade from the awnings. It was a great place to hang out. Peter goes up there to pray. But rather going, than going into prayer, he goes into this conscious state of seeing things other than what's physically present. And notice this sheet that has been let down in front of him. It contains something, both clean and unclean animals. I need to help you understand that so this makes sense to you. All the representatives of the earth, of the animal world, are shown in those sheets. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6 in the story of Noah and the ark, God has broken it down into the exact same three categories. Animals of the earth, the four-footed animals, the reptiles of the ground, the birds of the air. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account, you find it broken down into the exact same three categories. God has done it again here for Peter. What's going on? In the Old Testament, God laid down certain restrictions under Old Testament law, things that his people could participate in and could not participate in. If you've never read the book of Leviticus before in the Old Testament, I encourage you to do it, but don't do it when you're sleepy, okay? It will put you to sleep, I promise you. It's very, very meticulous, but it's full of laws that God gave to the Old Testament individuals, the Jewish people who lived during that period of time, and he had a reason for it. This is big picture. Let me help you with the reason. Just one passage out of the book of Leviticus. Look with me on the screen. Leviticus chapter 20. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean and between the unclean bird and the clean and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground which I have separated for you as unclean. Here's the big picture. Thus you are to be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now here's what's imperative. Israel had neighbors Neighbors who worshipped small gods, God's small g, foreign gods, they worshipped idols. God said, you're not going to be like those people. You're going to worship the one true God. So I'm going to put restrictions on you to deter social interaction. So if your neighbor is constantly putting pork on the barbecue and you've been told you can't eat pork, you're not going to be hanging out at Bob's house too much, right? Because he's constantly cooking pulled pork, and you're not supposed to eat it. So it it breaks the social interaction. That's part of what's going on here. God laid down these rules. But since the arrival of the new covenant, when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, there's a new covenant that I'm making. Remember the night that he was crucified? He said, in my body, you're going to be represented by this bread, and in this cup, the new covenant... God brought the new covenant. So with the new covenant, the restrictions are completely over. So God's bringing this news to Peter. And he says, Peter, since it's lunchtime, and since you're hungry, get up, kill, and eat. Now, any practicing devout Jew is horrified by what he's just been told to do. That's why Peter's reaction is so strong. No way. No means, Lord. I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. I have never crossed that barricade in my life. Don't ask me to go there. All his life, he's been kosher. How can he throw all of that aside and not assault his conscience? How can he go there? So Peter resists so strongly. The voice comes to him a second time, says, Peter, don't you call unholy the things that I have called holy. In other words, God's saying, Peter, you're going to love Bacon. It's really great. Praise God for Acts chapter 10, church. <laughs> you get to eat these things that no longer, they couldn't eat. See, these regulations are so ingrained. Peter cannot comprehend what's happening. Now, if you've been here during this course of the study of Acts, maybe not every single week you've learned some of these details. Think about how strong Peter's reacting to this. But compare that to the fact that Peter was beat for the name of Jesus. Jesus thrown into prison, but yet he came out of prison saying, I can't believe I was counted worthy to suffer this for the name of Christ. Peter has been told to go to Samaria to reach the Samaritans, the people that he didn't want to associate with. He didn't argue with either one of those two things. But when he's told to do something that seems absolutely unbelievable To comprehend that God would ask him to do that. He steps back and says, no way. I am not crossing that barricade. So God has to say to him, three times. And immediately the object's taken up into the sky. See, Peter is so mystified by this. He can't comprehend what this means. We know now, looking back on this, that the meaning is twofold. One, God's doing away completely with those dietary restrictions to help them Understand, they need to reach out into the entire world. That's the mission of the church. So what God's doing, the second component, is he's bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together, not keeping them apart. So Peter's perplexity is really short-lived because in the same moment he's completely confused, the Roman soldier shows up with the two other men and they're at the gate. So here's the big picture. The law of Moses, the Old Testament details, kept Jews from wanting to be with Gentiles kept Gentiles from wanting to be with Jews. At the cross, the barricade is completely broken. When Jesus went to the cross, it took away all those differences. So let's lean back into where we started this morning. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The big word there is the word all. For all have sinned, So if we're all on the same plane, equally separated from God, no matter how great the sin is, if we've all sinned, that means we're all under the same condemnation, separated from God. But that also means that same God can offer salvation to all. There's not many gods, there's one God and he can be reached through salvation so paul emphasizes through romans 10 that truth it says this romans 10:12 for there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord is the lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him for whoever will call on the name of the lord will be saved see god's not just changing peter's diet here you not just removing the restrictions. He wants them to know no one is beyond the reach of God. Everyone is possibly, if they will respond to Jesus, is in the place where they can have eternal life with God. That's the truth of Romans 10. So Peter's beginning to understand this. Watch as the story moves on. He's beginning to understand these pieces are being put together. So he's going to spend the evening with some Gentiles. Verse 21, Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? Now their answer has to be absolutely astounding to him because of this information. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius A centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Astonishing. A Gentile who's had an angel visit him to tell me to come hang out at his house? How astounding would that be? Now, Peter's about to do something equally astonishing. It's too late to return to Caesarea. So he invites the men to come stay with him, move forward. Verse 23, so he invited them in and gave them lodging and on the next day he got up and went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now the barriers are coming down. See, no self-respecting Jew would dare go into the home of a Gentile And no Gentile was allowed to come into the home of a Jew. And yet here we find Peter hanging out with them. Not just hanging out, but he's rolling out the red carpet. When we're told he's giving them lodging, Greek language says he's he's entertaining them. Now it's going to take two days to go from Joppa up to Caesarea. And in two days, two worlds are going to collide. Seven devout Jewish men are about to walk into the house of a Gentile. And the crowd that he's gathered. Verse 24. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. Now, Peter's a servant, right? He's not a celebrity. So we've got pastors who are treated like they're celebrities today, people who host television shows that individuals worship. Peter's a good example that we're not to be that way. Peter's a servant. He's not a celebrity. So look at his response, verse 26. But Peter raised him up saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. Now up to this point, Peter and Cornelius have done exactly what God has asked them to do. They've obeyed everything right to the detail. Except Cornelius has gone one step further. God never told Cornelius to go out and gather a crowd. God never said gather your family, your friends, your relatives, anybody that you work with and bring them over. He never told him to do that. What's going on there? God's about to use man's free will to accomplish his purposes. Let me explain it this way. If Cornelius hears the gospel and he's the only one who is saved, who comes into relationship with Jesus Christ, The people hanging out at the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, they could say, well, he's an aberration. He's just one unique individual. He's like the guy in Africa that Philip talked to. But when God saves an entire household, all the friends, all the Gentiles who have gathered together, the church in Jerusalem has to accept that God is drawing Gentiles into the church also. Move forward with me to verse 28. And he said to them, this is Peter speaking, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, that's, that's code for Gentile, or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Verse 28 says, it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, Peter's emphasizing for us, I'm not supposed to be here. This is against the rules. This is not something that I'm supposed to get a gold star for. See, by that standard, he has lived his entire life. That is the measure of a good Jew, obeying the laws. For millennia, Jews have referred to Gentiles as dogs. I don't want to be with that Gentile dog So when Peter says Gentiles are not unclean, God has shown me this. This had to have stunned his listeners because they knew how Jews felt about Gentiles. But he's still not sure why he's in the house. He doesn't understand God's plan and the bigger picture that God intends for him to call Cornelius a brother in Christ. Move forward, next big chunk, verse 30. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Wow. Capital W, capital O, capital W, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, hear me on this. You never know when your willingness to talk about Jesus is a direct response to someone else's prayer request. Someone else's desire to know God more. So when you speak of Jesus and his name and salvation in Jesus alone, you never know when your willingness to do that is exactly what someone else has been asking God for. Exactly what someone else has been waiting for. That's the clarity of coming out of that passage. Verse 33 he says, we're gathered here, we're present to hear from you what God wants to say. When he uses that language, he's referring to a very common thought of we've gathered to worship, we're gathered here to hear about God, we want to know what God has to say. So very clearly to Peter, everyone in that room knows God brought them all together, right church? God brought them all to this place. They didn't do this on their own. There's no way a Jew would have arranged to go to a Gentile's house. No way a Gentile would have arranged for a Jew to come to his house. So God orchestrated all this. Cornelius knows something even more. He knows what he's about to hear is absolutely monumental. It's going to blow his mind. Because God arranged for it. God sent the angel messenger. God caused Peter, the leader of the church, to walk for two days to come up here with this information. Cornelius is so convinced of that, that's why he assembled the crowd. That's why he says, we're here. We want to hear what you've commanded. Notice. They're not asking for a lecture on religion. They're not asking for the finer points of Judaism. How how does the sacrificial system actually work, Peter? What's Leviticus all about? That's not what they're looking for. They want to know how can we encounter God because they're seekers. How do we get to know God? So let's zoom back out, church. Let your eyes drift back up the page to verse 22 if you have your Bibles open and see the things that are said about Cornelius. Cornelius. What are we told about this man? He's righteous. He's God-fearing. Then his own soldiers went one step further and said, this guy is liked by everyone. He gives away his money. The people in the Jewish nation even speak well of him, meaning his co-workers, his enemies, his friends. People really like this guy. So Cornelius has goodness. Cornelius has morality. He's charitable. People speak well of him. He's liked on the job, but what does he not have? He doesn't have salvation. Even though he's a God-fearer, even though things have come up before God and caught God's attention, he doesn't have salvation. Today, it is absolutely easy to hear someone say, you know, just leave Cornelius alone. His path is just fine. He's moving right along the trail. Things are going great for him. Why does he need Jesus? Because God's making it really clear that's what he needs. When individuals say, leave him alone, his path is just fine. It's totally contrary to the Bible. If every one of us have the same creator, and we do, and we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God is the one who needs to reach into our life. It means all of us need that God creator to redeem us. The concept of pluralism is that there's many paths to God. That's totally contrary to Scripture. It's a lie of Satan. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. Cornelius has goodness. People really like him. He has morality. God says you're lacking something, Cornelius. That's why Peter needs to come. Apart from Jesus, he won't find God. Now, Peter's vision up to this point has completely related to Old Testament law. It's taken him right down the trail where he fully understands the implications of the symbolism that's been given to him. Watch, it's really clear. Verse 34, Peter opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 34, when it says God is not one to show partiality, means God's taken down this barrier. There's the safety tape that Peter had in his life, and now he's got a fresh insight. I get it. It makes sense to me now. I understand. There's a complete new reality here. God is inviting every single person into a relationship with him. So when he uses this language, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him is made We need to make sure we understand what's being said here because some people misunderstand that. They think it's teaching universalism, that God accepts everyone on the basis of their works. If they do enough good things, God's going to really like them, and he'll just wink at them and invite them in someday. Well, that thought would be absolutely inconsistent with the Bible, and it would be inconsistent with what Peter's about to say in verse 43. He's not going to contradict himself. So in verse 43, he says, it's by Jesus that you can know God. If Cornelius was already saved, why bother sending Peter there? If he's this good guy who's done all these good things and God really likes him, why even have Peter make the journey all the way up to Caesarea? See, what's really being said there is God's assuring them. He's assuring them that salvation is available to those who have a prepared heart, those who are doing the right things and they're seeking after God. What you're about to get here in the closing verses is the greatest lesson you can find in the entire Bible of how to share Jesus with someone. Go with me to these last passages. Verse 36, the word, this is Peter speaking, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, But to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. A very simple gospel presentation. You'll never see it more straightforward in all the Bible than that. Some people need a really detailed explanation. They need great amounts of information. Some people have had their hearts pre-prepared by the Holy Spirit, as these people have in Cornelius' house. And all they needed was a simple elemental explanation. Cornelius has heard it. It's very simple, and he gets it. So Peter starts out brilliantly. Verse 37, he says, you yourselves know, meaning this church, they're aware. They're like America 2015. They know about Jesus. He says, you guys know about Jesus. It's not a mystery to you. You're aware of the miracles. You're even aware of baptism. See, they've heard about Jesus, and everything they've heard is true. So Peter's saying in verse 39, I'm a witness of this. I've seen it with my own eyes. I personally saw it. Uh, Verse 40 is the absolute capstone to your faith if you're a Christian. It's the cornerstone of everything that you are. When he says in verse 40, God granted that he become visible. Jesus became visible. Don't let that pass by. Don't let that be overlooked because if in your personal theology, if you don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, you got nothing. Peter said, we're of all people most to be pitied if Jesus has not risen from the dead. You put your hope in nothing. This is another way he said it in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. But he goes on to say, Jesus is alive Everything has changed as a result of it. See, Jesus' literal resurrection is the only bridge that crosses the gulf separating you from God. It's the only thing that can get you to God is the relationship through Jesus Christ. So Peter cuts loose in verse 43 with the greatest one sentence in all of the Bible I'm personally convinced of. He cuts loose with the gospel. Verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of what, church? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. Hitler. Pol Pot. Mark Kring. Every person within the sound of my voice. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 10.43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. How beautiful is that? Peter has given them exactly what they needed to hear. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit knew Peter gave them exactly what they needed to hear because in verse 44, watch, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. This is absolutely sudden. No one anticipated this. Peter's just getting started. The preacher's not done, even though it's not even 12 o'clock yet. The Holy Spirit says, Peter, you got to stop. These people understand it. They get it. While Peter is still speaking these words. See, Peter's just getting started. But when they hear of forgiveness in Jesus, they believe. What's going on there? I don't see evidence of anyone praying. I, I don't see anybody reading a Bible tract. I don't see anybody walking the aisle or talking to a pastor. It just says they believed and the Holy Spirit came. What's going on there is God knows. God knows intimately what's going on in your heart this morning. God knew what was going on in their heart. He knew that they heard and they believed, and so he showed up in power with the Holy Spirit because our God knows everything. See, the Spirit's coming didn't require them to be baptized first, did it? Didn't require the laying on of hands. He came in response to their belief. See, church, there is no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Remember that thought. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. We're told according to God's word, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He's our comforter. He's our guide. But we're also told he is our pledge to eternal life. Meaning God seals us with the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is active in your life, if he's present, it means you've got eternal destiny with God. Verse 45 brings us to an end. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. End of story. But not the end of the implications. What you've just seen in this event is parallel to Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. Most theologians call this the Gentile Pentecost because the Holy Spirit came in power here. What you need to notice is they are not saved because they're going to be baptized, right? They're saved, and then they're baptized afterwards. The baptism is the evidence that they are saved. So Peter goes on to say, verse 47, surely no one can refuse the water, meaning there's no barriers anymore. The safety tape has come down. God has moved from Judea into Samaria, now into the uttermost parts of the world. How do they know? Because the Holy Spirit gave his witness with power. So here's how I want to end Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus' own words, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will come with power. I'm going to ask you to test yourself in just a minute. Just just a couple very simple questions. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will come with power. And in this power, you and I are able to do Jesus things. According to Jesus, that promise is not made just to a few select people. It's made to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes with power. You receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, so test yourself this way just very, very simply. Do you personally this morning have a desire to understand the things of God? Do you desire His Word in a way that perhaps you never did a year ago or five years ago? Do you find yourself passionate about knowing Him better? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You want to see the power of the Holy Spirit in a transformed life? Look at someone who had absolutely no interest in the things of God and the transformation to someone who's chasing after the things of God, wanting to understand his word. Does God's word make more sense to you today than it did a year or five years ago? Evidence of the Holy Spirit, because man can't do that. The Holy Spirit is the teacher who explains things. In humanness, it's foolishness to us. The experience of the Holy Spirit. Here's an easy one. Have you seen the evidence of the obedience of the Holy Spirit in your life? Meaning, is there conviction of sin? Things that you used to participate in so freely, you now feel conviction over. Here's a fourth one. What about the spirit of praise? God says the Holy Spirit drives us to praise Him. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, there's evidence because you're praising God. You're talking about Jesus or you're singing. Maybe you don't Jive with all the songs. Jive, there's a 70s word. (laughs) I just kind of flew out, okay? But, But measure yourself. Do you have a desire to worship God? If you are a believer and you find these things are not true of you, that's not an exclusive list, by the way. If you find these things are not true of you, perhaps there's a sin issue in your life that's blocking you from experiencing the power of God. Maybe there's something that you haven't dealt with that you're continuing to participate in that's blocking God releasing his full power in your life. It may also be another thing. It may be that you've never been trained or taught how to identify the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And this is maybe your first glance at that. Maybe you've never thought about these questions. These are all indicators of whether or not the Holy Spirit is active in your life. I'm going to close by allowing you to have some silent time to talk to the Father. And I'll close in prayer. But here's what I want you to do. I'm absolutely going to urge you to do this. When this service closes, first of all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, start out your prayer this way. Declaring your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Start there. Tell God, I know If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, this is a great time to start. If you want to confess Jesus, you can do it right there in your own seat. You just saw it in this passage in Acts chapter 10. You don't have to walk an aisle. You can just tell God, I recognize Jesus is my king. He is my savior. You can confess him right now. But wherever you land, here's where you should go next. If you recognize Jesus is your savior, ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. Ask God to release that power. And he'll help you identify whatever it is that's blocking. And here's the second thing you can ask for. Ask for the ability to discern the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because when you identify the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, maybe some of you just did by the questions I asked, it increases your boldness. You begin to recognize, yeah, I identify with that. I see that. I know that the Holy Spirit is real in my life. It causes you to walk a little more confidently and talk a little bit more freely about Jesus. So here's your quiet time. Just take a moment, close your eyes, and talk to the Father. And then I will close the service. Father we welcome the quietness and the opportunity to engage with you perhaps for some here the first time in months in the stillness of this moment i ask for those who need assurance that you bring assurance and for those who need conviction that you meet them right at the point of their need. For those who desire a relationship with you, a brand new beginning, forgiveness in Jesus, that you would surround them with your incredible loving arms. You've shown us again today that there is no one beyond the reach of God. We rest heavily in that promise. I pray for the believers who are here right now, Father, that as they're reminded of what it looks like to have the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life, that you translate that into a confident walk this week, a boldness and a willingness to speak of the name of Jesus in ways perhaps that they didn't even do previous to the service. Father, we surrender this time right now to you and just ask for your blessing upon it. I ask for your blessing upon these people who have taken this time to study your word. It's in Jesus' name that we go out and we ask for your blessing in his name. And all God's people said, amen.